0: This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. For the past 15 years, I've been helping children and adults meet their full potential. On our podcast, we're going to share some tips and tricks with you and some of my knowledge on how you can reach your potential and your family's goals. Each week, we'll be highlighting different specialists that can help you understand human development and how to assist your family in living their best lives. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Today we're joined with Dr. Susan Basic. She is an occupational therapist, a fellow of the AOTA. She's a professor emerita at occupational therapy at Cleveland State University, where she taught for 34 years. And she's a director and owner of Every Moment Counts, LLC. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You are truly an inspiration to me, and you are an amazing role model to students, new grads, occupational therapists, and um, everyone in our profession.
1: Welcome. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here, and uh, thank you for having me, Robin. Can you just briefly describe, um, you
0: know, how you got to this area of practice, how you decided to work in academia or to start this Every Moment Counts um, initiative? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, sure. So I've been an, um, an OT for 40 years, um, 41 actually, um, and I really took seriously when I went to school the whole concept of blind body unity and how... You know, even in our inception, we always realize the importance of how um, mental health is so critical to overall health. And we um, care about both physical and mental health and, and how engaging people, helping people engage in an occupation, meaningful occupations, can help promote mental and physical health. So you know, I, I took that seriously, and I started out at UCP in Indianapolis. I worked with um, children and adults with cerebral palsy and um, I really saw a gap I think one theme in my career is identifying gaps, um, things that we see that may be missing or uh, not done in practice and and I was really concerned that at that time families were not a part of the team, and they were behind closed doors, and because of that, I guess my first area of research and interest was family-centered care, and then I was involved in um, AOTA's family-centered care initiative in the late 80s, and then um, I I worked clinically. I did home-based intervention in rural Florida with birth to three. I got really involved in... um, Food refusal and children who had been tube fed, and again, I I added the lens of what were they dealing with, what are they dealing with related to psychosocial aspects of eating, and um, so I I wrote and, and published on that as well. Um, I entered academia nineteen full time in academia in nineteen eighty four i I just loved learning and it was a good for, fit for me because it allowed me to continually learn and do research um, so i I taught for thirty four years I developed a graduate certificate in school based practice so my my teaching really um, as I taught over those years, I added more and more. Um, related to school-based practice, because it's, it was such a growing area. Um, after the law was um, passed in 1975, um, the flood doors opened, and we saw this this huge growth of our role in school-based practice, where initially it was considered a specialty area. Uh, I don't view it as a specialty area. I, I view school practice as a major area of practice. And so um, as I evolved in my teaching and my career, I became um, more and more interested in how we're addressing mental health in children and youth. And I've stayed connected with AOTA, so for your listeners, for your students and, and occupational therapists, I think it's really important to stay involved in AOTA, to be a member. Um, it's always been a lifeline for me and a way to um, grow in ways that I've wanted to in terms of leadership and even publishing. So in 2000, I was invited by Barb Hamp, who was really involved as a pediatric coordinator, and Leslie Jackson at AOTA to a think tank meeting. Um, they invited 20 clinicians and researchers who they felt had a vested interest in um, children and youth and mental health. And, and the, the reason for the meeting is um, in 1999, the Surgeon General um, published the very first report ever on mental health with a special part of that report on children's mental health. And so we spent two days, we read that whole report before our meeting, and we really talked about what are we doing as OTs to be a part of this, And sadly, we knew at the time, this is 2000, that, you know, if there was much written on mental health, it was treatment or intervention for children and youth with mental health challenges or behavioral challenges. And what the Surgeon General really called for, and the World Health Organization too, was for attention to mental health promotion as well as prevention and not waiting until people are or children are suffering and ill, but to 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 um, do work to prevent mental health challenges. And I guess I saw that as a, I look back and I see that as a pivotal meeting, a p- pivotal experience for me. Um, I really became very committed to contributing to um, not only publishing and, and um, doing research in the area of OT's role in addressing mental health, but also building capacity of OTs to do this work. Um, so one of the problems I think we've had in, in our education systems for OT is we've defined mental health OT in a pretty um, – um, in a pretty narrow way, and a lot of courses have traditionally focused on teaching students how to address mental health with adults or children who've got chronic mental health challenges in traditional mental health settings. And part of my challenge, and I think the challenge of OTs that I work with, is that we've got to help all OTs embrace and learn about how we address the mental health needs of the people we serve in any setting. And so that's kind of been a challenge of mine um, with AOTA and uh, because there's been a big gap. I think OTs in schools want to address mental health, but they don't have the language or the knowledge or the specific skills for how to translate our knowledge of mental health into school-based practice. So um, after that meeting then, I did my dissertation on work related to um, occupation-based groups we developed at CSU, I did, to address the social-emotional needs of children living in poverty in an after-school program. So the HOPE groups, and I've published information on that um, in AHOT and OT practice, They're occupation-based groups with embedded social-emotional learning themes that our students at Cleveland State have um, implemented since 2004, and um, it's really been great because our students learn about the space of poverty and the impact, but they also learn how to run occupation-based groups. Right. Um and then after that um I had an opportunity um the other gap was that we really needed a pub some publication that you know through AOTA on how to apply a public health approach to mental health so this multi-tiered mental health um, promotion prevention and intervention so that was the book that I edited mm-hmm. in 2011 that really Takes that framework, and um, I applied the OT practice, the OT process to that framework. So how would how would OTs apply this multi-tiered framework in schools and clinics? Um, so when that came out, then I I was excited about the book being published. But the issue is um, one of knowledge translation. So the the knowledge translation is how how do you get people to to actually learn this and implement it. Mm-hmm. And I went to a two-day conference um, in Canada, in Toronto, on knowledge translation, and, and I opened my eyes to the need for researchers to interact in close, collaborative ways with clinicians in order to help, you know, um, you know, prepare clinicians to learn the information in digestible ways and then figure out how to apply the information in their context. Mm-hmm. And so I developed this building capacity initiative. I invited 14 OTs, this is the pilot in 2011, mm-hmm. and I said, would you join me for six months and read the whole book? And... Let's really think about how you could apply this in practice. And so we met three times over six months because people are busy. But they read two chapters at a time, and then they completed an online discussion with their with their community of practice. So there were 14 of us, and um, it, it was really um, inspiring to see how they they took to the information and were so re-energized and excited about applying this framework to practice mm-hmm. and then I heard about grant funding through the Ohio Department of Ed and we decided to write a grant we brainstormed what we how we could apply this mm-hmm. really representing OT's full scope of practice including meal times and play and leisure and um, Embedding strategies during the school day, embedding our knowledge and activity-based, you know, interventions. And so I wrote this grant after we envisioned, we we envisioned Every Moment Counts um, during a three-hour meeting, the 14 of us. Um, and I was funded. We were funded in 2012 for three years, 740000
0: from the Ohio
1: Department of Ed.
0: Wow. And it
1: was really exciting because we were the first funded grant to OTs in the state. And um, I think it's really critical for OTs to think about funding through our state uh, educational organizations because it it, it puts us on the map. People learn about what we can offer.
0: Yeah,
1: for sure. And so for three years, the grant really funded this. Team of mine, the 14 in it, since has expanded uh, of school and clinic-based OTs, and we developed several model programs and embedded strategies that are all on our website. Mm-hmm. So the website um, is www.everymomentcounts.org, mm-hmm. and this is an information-dense website because it was federal funding funding going through the state um you know we made everything we had to make everything free you know uh-huh. we couldn't sell you know books or anything so everything's on the website it has a ton of information so we developed a comfortable cafeteria program and refreshing recess programs we felt that ots have a lot to offer during these times of the day and there's six week one day a week Programs where the OT really serves as a coach and model in helping cafeteria supervisors and students create positive environments for participation and enjoyment. Wow. So um, we developed those. They're awesome programs. Um, they're, they have a theme each week. We focus on helping kids learn pro-social behaviors, like how to be a good friend. That's a theme for one week. Uh, Mealtime conversations is another theme for another week, how to respect differences and include others, healthy eating. um, So we've done research on all of our, you know, uh, one of the things that I feel strongly about is, you know, we develop new programs based on best available evidence. But then once we develop the programs, we need to collect data to show that they were effective. So um, we have published the research on the Comfortable Cafeteria Program. It, it was published in 2018 in AJOT. And also, we, um, as a part of the grant, we replicated that six-month building capacity process in six regions throughout the state of Ohio, reaching about 220 OTs and OTAs. And we collected data on that. And what we found was that the six-month building capacity process was um, very effective in helping OTs learn what this framework is, this multi-tiered framework, and apply, uh, and then, you know, actually change their practice. So we saw statistically significant differences in their knowledge, their beliefs that they could address mental health. And their actions um, so that was published in 2015 and so um, we also developed a making leisure matter initiative for focusing on helping children and youth we started with children and youth with disabilities um, to, to explore and participate in extracurricular leisure we know that um, children who have one or more structured leisure activities do better socially and emotionally and academically and that many kids are deprived, occupationally deprived, specifically kids with disabilities and those living in poverty. So that was another initiative. Another initiative was um, just learning how to embed strategies throughout the school day. Uh, We developed the Calm Moments Cards for helping teachers. And frontline workers recognize signs of stress and then embed uh, thinking mindfulness yoga and sensory strategies to reduce stress and enhance emotional well-being so we have a lot of information on how to do this everything's free on our website so that was all done um, until like 2015 and then we, weren't, we didn't receive further funds in Ohio, however, we've continued to grow, and my team now, this original group of 14 plus other OTs, are really change leaders with me, and we, we've actually presented over 60 times wow. at state and national um, meetings since 2011. It's really been amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, We also received funding from um, the Department of Ed in New Hampshire. We replicated the building capacity process there, like, I think it was two years ago. Um, So that's been exciting. So we're really, our goal is to help bring this to all states. Uh, We've done um, two-day conferences. We did a kickoff every moment conference last November in Cleveland. Uh, we had another one this summer in Ohio. Um, so the, the the big challenge now is how to get this in the hands of all OTs and right. help in their implementation. Right. Well, um, you're so it definitely real exciting.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like an amazing program. I know that I had heard you speak at, a, at the AOTA conference last year, and you really inspired me to... Um, you know, it's definitely look at your website and use some of those practices um, when I teach my students and, you know, and in my own practice. So I really thank you for that. And it sounds like it's so thorough, so thoroughly thought out. Um, all those different aspects that you had worked on and those different initiatives and different programs are really, you know, they really combat that area of need from all points. I mean, it's really looking uh-huh. at that child and their needs. School can be such a complicated environment yeah. for Especially children with special needs, typically develop in children's test yeah. So, you know, I really do, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, more OTs throughout will see the amazingness of your program and definitely, you know, use it in their practice. Um, you know, it sounds like you did a great job with that, but I, I know that, every, you know, every project pretty much has some success stories and some, you know, challenges.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Can you share some uh-huh.
0: success stories with us?
1: Okay. Well, probably the biggest success I um, was, was definitely the building capacity initiative and seeing how it changed. It, uh, it allowed OTs to embrace our mental health roots and therapists would say things like, I was really disillusioned with practice, you know, in schools. It was, it's just handwriting and this and that. And it allowed them to think more in a top-down way, what is our full scope of practice and how, how do we articulate and address mental health? So one of the challenges is giving therapists uh, language to describe what we do related to this is what mental health promotion would look like, this is what mental health prevention would look like, and, and this is how I could address mental health challenges. So that's, that's, that was a, that's been a big success. Um, and just seeing that OTs are like, it's taken me back to our roots. They say things like, you know, it's it just, it's who we are. It's what OTs want to be, but they didn't feel like they had the language to describe it. Um of their successes is really seeing how OTs can impact schools and contribute in, at the universal level. So that would be like we have so much to offer to cafeteria and recess, which are two forgotten times of the school day that generally the principal is the one hiring the cafeteria and recess supervisors who never really get much education on how to do their job effectively. So. Um, The OTs and OTAs, I will say, who have implemented these programs in their schools, they say things like everybody, number one, everybody in the school knows who they are after the program, but they get hugs from all these kids that aren't even on the chief load because we bring joy to their lives and that, you know, eventually OTs, are called by the principal to help orient new test curious supervisors or research supervisors. So, I think the big success is breaking out of the mold of one-on-one interventions just with our caseload. But um, really, if we integrate services in natural context, we can impact a well, lot more kids than kids on a caseload.
0: Right, I and mean, definitely. So that's
1: yeah. the success. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about any any challenges that you've come across?
1: Okay. Probably some of the biggest challenges that we face and that we continue to struggle with is that many OTs in schools, and especially with private practice OTs who are in school, are, they, they perceive their role as just serving their caseload in a clinic-type model, so pull-up therapy, doing bottom-up type of therapy, high motor skills, sensory processing, and they're not top-down, and they're not integrated in natural context. So I, I see that sometimes therapists are, are given information about how they should do their job in ways that are not even legal. They're not accurate. So part of idea, the law states that we need to provide service in the least restrictive environment, which means we should be in the natural context as much as possible. But the the pushback is always, you know, how to do this. And as you might know, there are, again, are many therapists who are stuck in a, pull-out clinic-based model, which is not best practice. So our biggest, one of our biggest challenges is how to get OTs to move beyond that, because they can't implement the cafeteria program that we have or the research program if they're doing pull-out therapy. Right. Does that yeah. make sense?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I when I worked in the school system, one of the mo- you know most difficult challenges for me was educating the staff, even the principal, about like the value of OT, what we do, how many things we can be involved in, not just you know handwriting, scissor skills, but really right. we have such a we can have such a big impact um, on on the child and you know and and the the time that they spend in school, which is a lot of their life. Um, you know, it right. should definitely be a, a positive experience and sometimes it doesn't always work that way so um, I, again I really thank you for starting this initiative I think it's so needed and I think OTs and you know definitely you know mm-hmm. new grads definitely look into it and explore it and you know and use it in their practice would you have some tips for students or new grads that are wanting to mm-hmm. um, implement the program or go into this area of practice
1: well I think number one you they, they need to know the law and okay. um, The law and this whole concept of least restrictive environment is critical, that, you know, they need to educate their supervisors and they they need to integrate their services in the classroom and the cafeteria, recess, hallways, and extracurriculars, so um, there is a part of IDEA that states that children with special needs, if they need accommodations or supports to participate in extracurricular activities, that it should be provided. So that's just an example how I know an OT who would take that part of the law into IEP meetings and really talk about what supports would a, a student need to participate in after-school clubs or sports or whatever. So um, we should be helping promote leisure participation in very active ways. Um, Another tip I would say is definitely um, be more top-down versus bottom-up in terms of um, how we practice and that sometimes when we're bottom-up looking at just skills, um, then we get stuck in fine motor handwriting or even sensory processing. Which we're not fine motor and sensory processing therapists; we're occupational therapists. So when we're more cap down, we need to strategically. My recommendation would be to strategically look at our scope of practice, which includes education, ADLs, IADLs, um, including meal times, play, leisure, sleep, rest. So everything students learn to really take that to heart and and really be more top-down versus getting stuck in the bottom-up strategies
0: great advice. Um, I I definitely agree. I think your program definitely does that um, at a a really amazing level. Um, I I, I value your input and your experience and your knowledge, and thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that OT students, OTs will take this information, go to your website, get all that good stuff, and definitely implement it and use it in their practice. Um, Thank you so much for joining us again, and I really appreciate your
1: time. Oh, thank you, Robin, and all the best to you and your students and thank you. the therapists that hear this podcast. Thank you so
0: much. You're an amazing role model for all of us. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.